God, I pray as we look to a very, very familiar passage that you would open our hearts. God, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would, Lord, shine a spotlight on Jesus, even from Daniel chapter 3. But I pray that you would show us your might and your power, that you are the God of deliverance. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When Jewish uh, psychologist Viktor Frankl was arrested by the Nazis in World War II, he spent time in a concentration camp in Germany, and he wrote the following, they stripped me naked, they took everything, my wedding ring, my watch, I stood there naked and suddenly realized that at that moment that although they could take everything away from me, my wife, my family, my possessions, they could not take away my freedom to choose how I was going to respond. Later, as Frankel was reflecting on his experience, he actually wrote a book called Man's Search for Meeting, and he wrote this. He said, there's nothing in the world that would be so effectively help one to survive, even the worst conditions, as the knowledge that there is a meaning in one's life. He who has a why to live for, can bear almost any how. As we pick up the story in Daniel chapter 3, we are presented with a powerful picture of courageous obedience to God. Now, this is a very familiar story. We have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who risked their lives in bold faithfulness to God, not just because they knew their why, they knew something much more important. They knew something better than their why. They knew the who. They knew God Almighty, the great deliverer. And I want to make that connection for us this morning. As we walk through this passage, we're going to see different aspects of what courageous obedience, courageous faithfulness to God actually looks like. But it's all rooted in knowing who God is as the great deliverer. All right, so let's walk through this passage together. I'm going to point out uh, five aspects of courageous obedience. We'll start with the first one here in verses 8 through 12. I think courageous obedience flows from knowing who you are and whose you are. We left off last week in somewhat the middle of the story in Daniel chapter 3. We saw that King Nebuchadnezzar had built a 90-foot statue, this large golden image. He gathered all of the important officials from his empire to bow down and worship this image. He commanded them to. And if they refused, well, he's going to throw them into the fiery furnace. And it appears as if everybody submitted, everybody obeyed, everybody worshiped. But we notice in verses 8 through 12 that not everyone bowed down and worshiped, that three individuals refused, Shadrach Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's three buddies from Judah. Now, uh, this gets around. Obviously, there are people that can see that, and there's a specific group of the Chaldeans who take the opportunity to tattle on them to the king. Uh, the Chaldeans here, they hated the Jewish people. They presumably were incredibly jealous and upset that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego held uh, high positions uh, of influence in the Babylonian Empire. And so they maliciously accuse them in front of the king. And if you notice in verse 12, there are three related charges to their accusation. Look at it with me. First, they point out that they do not heed to the king's royal authority. They say that these men whom you, King Nebuchadnezzar, have appointed, pay no attention to you. 
All right, so this first charge, notice, it focuses on the civil authority of the king. But notice the second and third charges. It's a little bit different here. Also, verse 12, they say that they do not serve the king's gods. And then the third charge, also verse 12, says that they do not bow down to the golden statue that you, King Nebuchadnezzar, have set up. Okay, so the the second and third charges are connected to the first, which was rooted in civil authority here, but they're different. The second and third charges focuses on the king's religious authority. This is interesting here because the king took his civil authority and intertwined it with his religious authority. That's really interesting here because we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who demonstrate for us civil disobedience on the basis of King Nebuchadnezzar who takes his civil authority, which is a good thing given by God, and he misuses it. He oversteps into the religious arena. Now, this sermon's not a sermon on civil disobedience. All right, that's probably for a different time, different day. But we are commanded to obey those who are in authority over us. Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, Titus 3. However, we must be aware, I think, when we see people who are in authority over a particular group of people in a specific society who attempt to misuse their civil authority and abuse it by now exercising authority in the religious realm, that we are to obey unless there becomes this intertwining of religious and civil authority that results in God's people being asked to violate clear biblical principles. Now, I'm pointing this out. I think it's an important observation because this is precisely what was happening here in Daniel chapter 3, which provides the opportunity for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to demonstrate bold faith, courageous faithfulness to God. Everybody knew they were Jews. Everybody knew they followed Yahweh. And so underneath their courageous obedience to God is the fact that they they knew who they were. They knew their identity. They knew that they belonged to God. They weren't trying to blend in. They weren't trying to fit in with the crowd around them, with the world around them. They weren't trying to look like a Babylonian. No, they knew they were in exile. They knew they were a stranger. They knew that their ultimate citizenship was in heaven. They belonged to God, not to the Babylonian empire. And look, this is an important principle. If you want to be a courageous Christian, that you must embrace your identity as an exile here in this world. You don't belong here ultimately. You belong to God. So we must resist the temptation to want to fit in with the world around us, just to kind of blend in, to not you know, stick out too much because we follow Jesus. But there's no such thing as incognito Christianity. There's no such thing as a a, a chameleon Christian who just blends in with his or her surroundings. And I think there are too many Christians who ultimately just want to be liked by the world. They just want to be accepted. They don't want to be too weird as a Jesus follower. And if you have that kind of mentality, that's not going to lead to courageous Christianity. That's going to lead to a type of cowardice Christianity. So know who you are, know your identity, know who you belong to, because your identity dictates your behavior. 
And so get the order right. Like you're first and foremost a Christian who just so happens to be a business person, not the other way around. You're not a business person who just so happens to be a Christian. No, you're first and foremost a Christian who just so happens to be a teacher, a plumber, a doctor, a stay-at-home mom. You belong to God. And I think that forms the foundation for courageous obedience to God. All right? Secondly, though, we also notice here in verses 13 through 17 that courageous obedience demands bold faithfulness to God no matter the consequences. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were known as followers of Yahweh. As noted, they, they stood out as they refused to worship this golden idol. But that courageous decision had consequences. Verse 13 tells us that the most powerful man in the world is furious at them for, for refusing to bow down to this idol. He brings them in, and he asks them a question. He first says, is this true? Basically, how dare you? Like, are you, are you okay thinking this through right now? And he gives them another opportunity to, to submit to his authority, to bow down and worry. He gets the band ready, right? And then he reminds them of the consequence if they refuse. He says, you will die in the fiery furnace. But then he adds something in verse 15, a very fascinating question. We'll come back to it more in a moment. But he asks, is, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? It's an interesting question. It, it reveals Nebuchadnezzar's utter unbelief that God will save them. And from his standpoint, he's thinking, I destroyed Judah. I destroyed Jerusalem. I destroyed God's temple. God didn't come in and save the day. God didn't save Judah or Jerusalem. So he's wondering, what makes you guys think that God will save and deliver you now? Well, these three Hebrews, they say in verse 17 quite courageously that God is able to save us and deliver us from your hand. Look, I think this belief in God, this refusal to doubt, refusal to allow fear and anxiety reign, I think enable them to be bold in their faithfulness to God no matter the cost. Like despite the fact that everyone else is worshiping this idol, despite the fact that they're likely going to lose their high influential positions here, despite the fact that they may actually die, they refuse to compromise. Charles Spurgeon describes this scene this way. He says, we can imagine the enormous pressure on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to compromise. Everything in front of them, the king, the furnace, the music, the compatriots, their competitors, all of it conspired to convince them to compromise. Yet God was more real to them than any of those things. Do not judge the situation by the king's threat and by the heat of the burning fiery furnace, but by the everlasting God and the eternal life which awaits you. Let not flute, harp, and pipe fascinate you, but hearken to the music of the glorified. That men frown at you, but you can see God smiling on you, and so you are not moved. They knew their why, but more importantly, they knew the who. This reminds you of, of several other examples throughout the Bible, doesn't it? So many examples throughout the scriptures of bold faithfulness to God. One that sticks out to me is from Acts chapter 4. 
have the early church, Peter and John. They're performing miracles, healings. They're preaching the gospel. So the authorities bring them in. They hold them overnight and they question them. They say, what authority do you have to be doing such things? And Peter responds with utter boldness. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Such boldness to declare that in the face of the authorities. He later says in chapter 5, we must obey God and not man. Now, what enabled Peter's boldness in chapter 4? Well, it tells us in verse 13. It says, now, when they, those in authority, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. It's because they've been with Jesus. That's what enabled their boldness. When you have been with Jesus, he drives out all fear. When you have been with Jesus, the consequences for being bold for him no longer hold any weight. Not even the threat of death has power over you. And so if you want to be bold for Jesus, it has more to do with the proximity to Jesus than your position of power and influence. You'll never be bold for Jesus unless you are with him and close to him. The same Peter from Acts 4 wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Therefore, let those who suffer according God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Know the who. You know, it's interesting. Everybody wants to be a courageous Christian. Everybody wants to be a bold follower of Jesus, but not many are willing to walk through the fiery trial of the consequences of being a bold Christian. And for you, it may not be literally a fiery furnace that you have to walk through for being bold in your faithfulness to God, but it might be that you lose your job. It might be that you don't get that promotion at work. It might be that you lose a particular friend or relationship, or you're mocked, or you're ostracized, or you're made fun of. And the question that you have to answer before that moment comes, before your verse 15 moment comes, is, is following God worth the consequences for being bold and being faithful to God? Is Jesus worth it? Really comes down to that question. And, and you got to decide that now, before the moment comes. And only those who have been with Jesus, who are with Jesus, are able to say, yes, it's worth it. Decide that now, before the moment Thirdly, another aspect of courageous obedience is that it requires deep trust in God with the unknown future. Verse 18 is one of the most instructive and powerful verses in all of Daniel. Verse 17, we notice that their response, they believe that God can deliver them, but look at verse 18 for a moment. It says, but if 
not. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Notice what they're doing here. They are entrusting themselves to God's powerful hand because they believe that he can save them. But what's on display here is that their firm trust is in God whether or not he rescues them from death. Even if God chooses not to save them, they choosing, they're choosing right now to worship only God and no one else. See, this response is unbelievable when you really think about it. Because what they're not saying, they're not saying that we're bold in our faithfulness to God because that automatically means he will save us from the furnace. They're not saying that we're bold right now because we know 100% God will save us from the furnace. No, they're saying we're going to be bold for God, obedient to God. And if we die in that furnace, we're going to die in that furnace. If God intervenes, then, then so be it. That's not our call. Our job is to be obedient and faithful to God. And it's up to him whether or not he chooses to intervene or not. See, they don't know if they're going to be rescued. They know God can but they refuse to presume upon God something that he may or may not do. And look, that doesn't, that doesn't take away from the strength of their faith. I think it actually deepens it here because their trust is not dependent upon a desired outcome. Their trust is not dependent upon getting the circumstances exactly how they desire. And, and that's important for us because courageous obedience is rooted not in a desired outcome. It's rooted in God's constant, unchanging character. David Jeremiah, writing about this scene, says that the world is crying out for men and women, boys and girls, who have conviction of heart, who do not change their convictions on the basis of their circumstances. These three men knew what God wanted them to do, and they weren't afraid of the consequences. This is a reminder that faith is not just believing despite the evidence. Faith is believing despite the consequences. Faith is not believing that God will do A, B, and C. Faith is believing that God can do A, B, and C, but leaving the decision up to him. So look, church, I think faith and trust, I think it really comes down to this question been wrestling with this all week. And it's such a hard question to answer, but it's so important. Can you trust in God in the midst of uncertainty? Trusting in God when the sun is shining is one thing, but man, trusting in God when the storm is all-consuming is something completely other. Can you trust in God when the future is unknown? That's so hard for us. We, we love certainty, especially when it comes to our circumstances. Like, we just want to know that things will be fine, that things will be all right, right? We want to know that our kids will turn out okay. We want to know that we'll have job security, we'll be financially stable, that our health will be intact. But look, church, we have not been guaranteed that. There's nothing in the Bible that guarantees that your circumstances will turn out 
the way that you want them to. But one thing that we have been guaranteed and promised is that no matter the circumstances, you have a sovereign, all-powerful God who will walk beside you no matter what you go through. And so the question boils down to this. If God chooses not to do what we know that he can do, cure, fix, heal, restore, A, B, and C, will we still trust in him? If God refuses to answer our prayers the way that we want, the way that we expect, will we still trust, love, and follow him until the end? Will we, after praying to God about our deepest pains and our dashed expectations, will we, after casting burdens so heavy that they threaten to break our will to go on, Will we, after experiencing sorrow so deep that it feels like it's paralyzing us, will we, along with our three Hebrew friends, declare, but if not, I will still trust in you. But if not, I will still trust in you. Look, I say that this morning knowing full well that some of us are here today and you are walking through your own fiery trial right now. And I know you're trying to trust in the Lord. I know you're trying to depend on him, but perhaps some are really struggling with that. Maybe some are, are really kind of doubting right now. And, and I just wonder if, if that fits you, if that describes you, if it's because within your theology, within your understanding of faith, if you're not making room for verse 18. Like you got verse 17 down, God is able, but maybe in your mind, you think if God is able, then God will. Like if God can, then he must. And yet that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith, courageous faith, makes room for verse 18 and says, I will trust in you, but if not, I will still trust in you. And so maybe for some, you just need to hear this this morning. Courageous obedience means making room for a buff, but if not faith and trust in God. And I wonder if you need to hear that today just to release that grip that you have, that clutch around control, certainty, and the plan that you have for your life and actually submit to a God your unknown future. Love this quote by Corey Ten Boom. It says, Never be afraid to entrust the unknown future to a known God. Know the who. Well, the fourth aspect I see here in courageous obedience is that it leads to a deeper experience of God's presence and power. The response from Nebuchadnezzar in verses 19 through 22 is that he becomes unbelievably furious. It actually says that his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his posture, his disposition, his countenance. And he ordered that the furnace be turned up seven times hotter, to be over 1,800 degrees. This is kind of a euphemism for make it as hot as it possibly can be. And he charges that these men here, these three Hebrews, be thrown into the fiery furnace. It was so hot that the men who threw them in there actually died because of the flame. 
That's how hot it was. And now we know what happens. Like, this is such a popular, well-known story. Like, we know that they're unharmed. A miracle occurs. But what is front and center here is God's sovereign power. You can't miss it in chapter 3. And that's one of the main themes throughout the book of Daniel. We've seen it in every chapter. But what's interesting here, and the way that Daniel is, is written, is that it kind of turns up the dial each chapter that goes by. It kind of makes it front and center more and more and more. See, chapter 1, we saw God's sovereign power, but the main characters in the story barely noticed it. We as a reader did. Remember the three God gave, God gave, God gave, showing God's intervening, God's sovereign power? God gave Judah into the hands of the Babylonians. God gave Daniel favor. God gave Daniel and his friends knowledge and insight, right? But it was kind of in the background. Chapter 2, a little bit more front and center, God unexpectedly intervenes and, uh, you know, gives Daniel the ability to interpret dreams, but still not front and center like chapter three is. Like this is undeniable God's sovereign and power. And Daniel three is written in such a way for us to feel God's sovereign power. Like he could have just said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were unharmed. Boom, done. Chapter three over. Here's the beginning of chapter four. But it's not written that way. In fact, notice a couple of literary devices here that are, that are used to make us feel this. Verse 25, it's the appearance of the divine man with the Judeans in the furnace. This tells us, this is a demonstration of God's abiding presence with his people, even in the worst of time. Verse 27, the unharmed, look at the details here, unharmed bodies, hair, and garments. Could have just said they were unharmed but gets to the level of detail, demonstrating God's power to effect unexpected deliverance from death. Verse 27 again, the list of officials are repeated. This is a demonstration of God's power to save his people from the authorities who conform to Nebuchadnezzar's order. Verse 29, the list of international participants ordered not to speak against the one true God. This is the demonstration of God's universal lordship and power. Verses 26, 28 through 30, the continued use of the pagan names towards these three Hebrews 13 different times in this chapter. Demonstration of God's saving power cannot be undone by human actions against his believers. This is an amazing masterpiece, all highlighting God's power and presence. It is undeniable. Even the fact, the little detail here of the same king, King Nebuchadnezzar, who questions in verse 15, what God will save you, in verse 29, from the same mouth, is saying, no other God is able to save like this. That's powerful. Like, that'll preach. It's the same guy, King Nebuchadnezzar, who looks into the furnace, doesn't just see three individuals, he sees a fourth. He's the one who identifies. He's the one who says it looks like the appearance like that of a son of God or of an angel, verse 25. Now, many scholars believe that the fourth individual in the furnace is the son of God. It is a pre-incarnate Jesus. This would be an example of a, a theophany. A theophany is a, a visible manifestation or appearance of God to mankind. It's all over the Old Testament. Several examples of this, like, you know, God speaking to Moses in the burning bush, uh, Jacob wrestling with God, Genesis 32, the captain of, uh, of God's army in Joshua 5, these manifestations of God to mankind. We see that here in this scene to show us that God is 
with them in the fire. Isn't that interesting? Like this is so fascinating to me that God chooses to display his power and his presence once they were in the fiery furnace and not before. Like God visibly and tangibly manifests his presence and power when the trial that they were walking through was at the very hottest. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't know what was going to happen, when their faith was being most stretched, that's when God, Yahweh, the creator and sustainer of life, could not be any closer to them with his presence. And God delivers them. Man, what a powerful principle for us as we walk through our own fiery trials in today's life. When we feel like we're all alone, when we feel like we, we don't know if we can continue on, that is typically when God is the closest to his people. That God uses the fiery trials, this environment here, to give us a glimpse of, of his power and his presence in a deeper way than, than if we were standing outside of that fiery trial. This is so powerful. It reminds us of Isaiah chapter 43. His promise here, he says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Notice this, when you pass through the wall, not if. We love it for, to say if. But it says when. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the, the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. One of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the fiery furnace, and they look at each other like, oh, that's what that meant. Also notice, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this is more application, they were bound and tied up before being thrown into the furnace. But once they're in the fiery furnace, they're free. They're unbound. It almost seems like God uses the fiery trials as a tool in his mighty hand to do some of his deepest work in our hearts, to set us free from some of the bondage that we experience with our own sin and our own struggles. See, there's something about walking through a fiery furnace of trials that exposes our deepest struggles and sins. It, it creates a sense of dependency upon God where we say, God, I only want you. Throw these idols out, throw the sin out, throw the struggles out. All I want is you and your presence because in your presence there's fullness of life and joy. Such a powerful scene here. But one of the biggest takeaways, and we'll close with this this morning, is we see that courageous obedience puts on display God as the ultimate deliverer. This is huge. This is the main point of this chapter, that as we walk in courageous faith, we're actually putting on display the fact that God is the rescuer of humanity. This is who he is. This is what God does. There's example after example after example throughout the scriptures of God delivering his people. God delivered his people from the hands of, uh, of Pharaoh in Egypt with the 10 plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. God delivered the city of Jericho into the hands of his own people. 
God delivered his people from the power of the Philistines and Goliath. There's all kinds of examples throughout the Bible, but ultimately, and most importantly, the best example, my favorite, is that God delivered his people from the bondage of sin, the clutches of death, the oppressive rule of Satan himself, and he did so not by sending an angel, not by sending one who is like the Son of God, but by sending his only Son, Jesus Christ, to deliver us from our own sin. That he sent Jesus 2,000 years ago to get up on a cross, to die in the place of sinners, to pay our penalty, that we had a debt because of our massive list of disobedience. And yet he sends Jesus to take our place so that we would not have to endure eternal separation from him. God is our rescuer. He is our savior. He is our deliverer. And don't miss how gloriously this passage points to Jesus. Like because of Jesus, we have an opportunity to be saved from, delivered from, redeemed from the most terrifying furnace you could ever face. A furnace that's hotter than 1,800 degrees from Daniel 3. And it's a furnace that all of us deserved. All of us deserved. It's the furnace of eternal condemnation and separation from God in hell forever and ever. And because of Jesus, because he took your place on that cross and he died for our sins and rose again, All who trust in Jesus, who put their faith in Jesus, not in themselves, not in their own works, not in their church attendance, not in being a good person, but only in Jesus, and they turn from their sins, can they be saved from that kind of fiery furnace forever and ever? And friend, if you're here today and you have not made that decision, we, oh, we've been praying for you. We hope that today would be the day of your salvation, that you would finally put your faith in Jesus. But church, don't miss this other point here, that when it comes to the fiery trials, as Peter put it, we as Christians, we are not delivered from them. We are delivered through them. Like when you become a Christian, as you're walking with the Lord, there isn't this supernatural hedge of protection keeping you from trials. Like, if anything, it seems like you go through more trials. And you've not been promised to be delivered from them, but through them as God walks alongside of us in the midst of them and sees us to the other side. And so this morning, I just wonder, man, there's so much going on in our church. So many people are struggling, suffering. And I just wonder if you feel like you are standing in the flames right now, going through life, and it feels like it's seven times hotter than normal. I wonder if you are tempted to just throw in the towel. It's so easy to do, wondering, is this really worth it? Let me run to some sort of escapism to get me through this trial. And let me just draw your attention. Let me ask you, do you see the fourth person with you? Do you see God Almighty, the deliverer, who is right there beside you? who promises to strengthen you, promises to comfort you? Do you see his scarred hands trying to hold on to yours, who is whispering to you, don't give up. 
Do not grow weary in doing good. Don't give up on the fight of faith. Look, you may not be delivered from this kind of fiery trial in this life, but you have been promised a place for all of eternity where there is no suffering, there is no trial, there is no fiery furnace. So my encouragement for you is that with the grace and strength that God supplies to you in Christ, may you be able to say that my God is able to deliver me from this trial if he chooses. But if not, I will still bless his name and worship him and him alone because he is enough. That's courageous obedience. That's the picture that we have in Daniel 3. Let's pray together. God, we love you and we thank you that you are with us and for us. God, we thank you that we are never truly alone. Lord, that the trials of life want us to be convinced that you have left us, that you have forsaken us, and yet we know that you haven't. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he has made a way for us to be forgiven, to be accepted into your family forever and ever, to be delivered from the furnace of hell. We thank you and praise you for him. I pray, God, that you would enable a steadfastness, especially for those who are here today who are going through trials, who are suffering. Lord, would you give them all the grace that they need to stand firm. God, remind them that you are with them right now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.